Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Stefania Lugli. Stefania is a civic engagement reporter for an educational nonprofit, the Kansas Leadership Center Journal, as well as the Spanish language site Planeta Venus. Her work supports increased news coverage on items of interest to English and Spanish-speaking Latinos in Kansas. Previously, she was a reporter in Wichita as part of the Report for America program, and also Sarasota, Florida, and wrote for the Metro section of the Boston Globe. She's a second-generation Venezuelan-American and a graduate of Emerson College in Boston. Hi, Stefania. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for the invite. Rumor has it that your journalism origin story begins in first grade. What's your journalism origin story? Yeah, so when I was a little kid, I always considered myself a writer. I used to incite some anger in the household because I would steal very expensive printer paper away from my mom's office, and I would just write my own stories on them. They were all fictional from the beginning, but I think that just showed that I had something creative in me that really wanted to come out. And my mom used to tell me stories when I was a kid. So I think she kind of planted that seed inside of my head. Like we'd be at bedtime. Tigers were my favorite animal when I was like five. So she would make up these really grand stories involving tigers and tiger families. And I don't know, it's just, I always had a natural inclination towards it. Did anyone else in your family besides your mom have an inclination to storytelling that might have steered you in this direction? You know, as a conscious adult, no. I have a late sister that she passed away when I was really young, so I don't have memories of her. But she actually also was working in broadcast production when she was 16, 17 in Telemundo in Miami. But again, it's not something I was ever aware of when I was thinking about journalism or writing. To me, it's just kind of a heartfelt coincidence. Okay. So where did the feeling come from that I read somewhere within your work? Journalism to me is an act of civic duty and compassion. I like to approach journalism as my way of advocacy in the world. And this doesn't mean that I'm pushing forward some kind of bias or secret agenda as so many people like to think when it comes to reporters. I just think that being able to write stories about communities that I always think of as being forgotten or forced out or forlorn of, I just feel like as a citizen of the world that I have the talent and I'd like to think, you know, the empathetic capacity to elevate those communities and give them a chance to be heard. So for me, I just, I feel that kind of weight on me daily and journalism is my way of being able to address that weight of me. And, you know, I try to lead with compassion. I'm a human being. So sometimes I have grudges and sometimes I, you know, um, I'm not a compassionate person, but I think that just leads to the complexity of being alive. So yeah, I feel like 
just having care for people around me that don't look like me that I may not have shared experiences with, but understanding that they still have just as much value as I do. You grow up. I grew up in Cape Coral, Florida. I was born oh. in Miami. And then I, when I was about five years, six years old, we moved to Cape Coral. Okay. So it goes, as I understand it, Florida to Boston, to Wichita, back to Sarasota, then back to Kansas. I ran through a whole bunch of different stops there. What's one big thing that you took away from each of those stops? That the need is same everywhere, even if the context is different. I think going from suburban beachiness to big city to the Midwest, which my first day ever in the Midwest was literally just moving into Wichita, Kansas because of Report for America. So I was very ignorant to what Kansas would look like and what kind of people were there. And I think I was really surprised just to see that, unfortunately, communities all struggle with the same things, right? Poverty, high cost of living, discrimination and criminal justice, all these things. But obviously, the environmental context just changes a little bit. Like one thing that I always am hyper aware of is, you know, in Wichita and everywhere, everyone talks about housing. Housing is so expensive. It's ridiculous. And to me, growing up in South Florida, which is now just absolutely extravagant in rent, and then going to school and living in Boston for a few years, to me, Wichita is very cheap compared to those two environments that I was in. But housing is a really big problem here in Wichita. They're just, rent is too expensive, home ownership is out of reach for pretty much every single generation. Seniors can't afford to hold on to their houses anymore because of high property taxes. And those issues are still existing in the other cities and states that people usually kind of jump to when they think about like housing problems. So I just have noticed that. The need is always there. People always want to just feel heard and listened to. There will always be someone ready to be mad at a journalist too, regardless of whether you're, of whether the reputation of a city or town is blue, red, or purple. All of those things are still true. A few things that we'll probably get to uh, a little later on, but first, how did you get your current job? Yeah, so... With Report for America, I was matched to a newsroom in Wichita, Kansas, called the Wichita Beacon, kind of a nonprofit startup. And while I was there, I met a woman, an absolutely amazing woman. Her name is Claudia Morrow. She's an undocumented, I say Mexican-American, because she is just as much American as I am. She is a community trailblazer here in Wichita. And we just connected with her having the connections that she does within the Latino community here in Wichita. And she has a lot of passion for giving accurate information to communities that may not have access to it. Particularly here in Kansas, there's really not a lot or, you know, before me, any kind of direct line to local journalism for Kansas Latinos. And 
that's just, you know, we became good friends while I was there at the Beacon. And when I left to work in Sarasota, we stayed in touch and she just got the idea to kind of start up her own little newsroom newspaper under a radio station that she already had called Planet the Venice. And she asked me if I wanted to freelance for her. And even though I was states away, I am just so loyal to her mission and what she believes in that I just wanted to help however I could. And also a little bit just because I was already missing Kansas. So I said yes. And our professional relationship just kind of grew from there that we were able to almost manifest a job for me that didn't exist, which is between Planet the Venice and the Kansas Leadership Center Journal. I'm considered the reporter for both of those publications. And basically the partnership came to fruition because Claudia really believes in me just as much as I believe in her. And we both just wanted to make a path for me to come back here and serve the Latino community. And, you know, we had friends at the journal that for whatever reason also believe in me and we were able to make this position, which I say, it's not just that I got a dream job. I like to think of myself and this sounds maybe a little, I don't know. It just, it feels weird to say, but I, I do think that the community deserves me as well because there's no one else in Wichita. I honestly can't even think of, there's no one else in the state that is completely devoting their journalism to the Latino community here, whether you're an immigrant or you're not an immigrant, whether regardless of what generation you are. And, you know, that's a very unspecific underserved community and they deserved someone like me so that's how that came about that's that's very impressive it's really cool that they that they were able to do this for you so how have you shaped the beat how have i shaped the beat it's it's just it's such a fun question just because i'm still figuring it out i've been back for seven months now and Every month feels like I'm kind of adding on to this growing experiment that's bigger than me, but I really try to kind of divvy up my reporting with long features, in-depth reporting, like my Oaklawn feature, and with little more short-term, easier turnaround kind of stories, whether kind whether it's providing civic information, like just putting together a guide of the rights that you have in Kansas when you're a renter and publishing that in English and in Spanish, or doing a Q&A with a, an administrative aide that works for the city of Wichita, who's bilingual, and she also works in a historically Latino neighborhood. And these seem like really simple stories, which they are in terms of the technique behind it, but I think they have just as much impact and outreach as an in-depth story does or an investigative story does, just because I will read everything. That doesn't mean that everyone else has the time or capacity to read 3,000 word long stories. 
So I think those bite-sized stories, as I call them, is a really good way to introduce accurate and careful journalism to a community that is kind of getting used to having that delivered to them. It's practical application too. It's things that they can take and say, hey, I can do something with this, which is I think what you're getting at in terms of the importance. Let's uh, take let's take two examples to show what you do. You mentioned Oak Lawn. Um, this is from August. You did a piece on Oak Lawn, which is an, an unincorporated community between the cities of Wichita and Derby with a significant Latino population. It gets some government services from a few different places, but there's a question over whose responsibility everything is. Can you explain the reporting that you did for this one? And I'll compliment you first by saying that I thought you crushed the lead with by mentioning Andre Cisco's entry into public service came about when she couldn't find anyone willing to mow the grass. Thank you. I appreciate that. The story of Oaklawn was a challenge for me because it was my first time really diving deep into the overwhelming mess that is bureaucracy when it comes to historical records and policy documents claiming one thing and then those documents are about 25 years old so you have to somehow find a path of did this actually happen did this maybe 10 percent happen did someone forget about it while also trying to use that path with people that are either no longer in office or honestly they're just dead so that was really interesting for me and it was like I said, was really challenging just because I hadn't had to face that level of record uh, interpretation, so to speak. So I started with the history of Oaklawn. As you read in the story, it was built during wartime to house air workers, and it was supposed to be a temporary Place. It was not supposed to exist past maybe 10 years and obviously still exists today. So just kind of tracing that path in terms of historical records and literally just reading up land bank claims and proclamations from the city of Wichita of, hey, we're going to give this town our water, which sounds really boring to most normal people, but I really eat up all that kind of historical stuff. I actually really love getting my hands into research and I don't realize how unnormal it is to enjoy that kind of thing until I'm like reading the minutes of a local council meeting to my partner. And I'm like, isn't this so funny? And he's just kind of like, I mean, I guess. And there's just like, there's just no connect. There's no connection as to why I'm finding this so amusing and because to me I'm like wow you can really feel the tension in this like one sentence just because I understand like the context of what they're talking about so that and actually physically going to Oaklawn and speaking with the residents there most of the residents I spoke to have been there for a very long time so they just have a really in-depth understanding of where Oaklawn was like 10 years ago versus today and literally having physical records to to go through within the Oaklands version of City Hall 
it was definitely a labor of love that's for sure and it it was an impressive story that certainly exposed a lot of bureaucracy throughout throughout different parts of the state certainly now i mentioned before practical things practical application on journalism and that I, another way to describe it, it felt like, is you write stories with purpose behind them. One example, you did a story on Latino families caring, caring for their elders and the strain that that causes. There was a paragraph in it, and I found this to be true with a few of your stories, that you've got these chunks where you go through all the different civic services that are available if you're facing a similar situation to the person that you're reading about. So I'm just curious if you could uh, articulate about that particular story and the idea of writing with purpose. That story is, I would say, one of my high points of my few months back in the job. I think it was a story that was meant to be more highlighting culture, like Latino culture, and just the responsibility that children of immigrants specifically feel in taking care of our aging parents or grandparents. I I do think as a Latina woman that there is a difference of expectation between my culture and other cultures around me. And when I was writing that story, I wanted it to just kind of, I wanted it to be an uplifting story of mother and daughter. It's so funny to be like, as a daughter, because obviously I'm a daughter, I'm alive and speaking with you, but there is so much in a mother and daughter relationship that is so difficult to capture in a story and just the love in it, the intensity in it, the give and take in it. And I'm so honored that Elizabeth gave me the honesty that she did because she was so obvious in the love that she had for her mother, but she was also very blunt about how much she was sacrificing. And I don't think we as children think about sacrifice when it comes to our parents until we're really forced to and I just wanted people to read that story and at the very least be moved and at the very most just be conscious of their relationships like with their loved ones and what you would do for them and that story is just it has been on my mind a lot lately because Elizabeth, the mother, passed away a couple of weeks ago. So I've had the family kind of reach out and tell me that they're so grateful that she was captured in a positive light. And granted, she didn't she didn't speak with me for the story. Just I, I'm referring to um, Elizabeth's mother, just because you know she was sick but she was there and I would you know have conversations with Elizabeth like with her in the room but I think just having these images of her and just highlighting how much love there was surrounding this woman was really important to them and for them to share that with me while they're grieving makes me really emotional and it's one of those things where I'm like I can't believe that this is my job and that People trust me to be so vulnerable about a situation that's just seeping into every aspect of their life. 
So, and I also had people who read that story reach out to me, not Latino, just that they read the story and they were like, this is exactly what my dad was going through. And I never understood it until I was reading the story of yours, like hearing and reading Elizabeth's words really honed it home for me. So for me, like that purpose of just helping people find connections to others, even when they don't know them, that's usually what I strive to do. So I'm, I'm really content that it happened with that story. It sounds like you take your responsibility seriously at a level, quite frankly, unlike most. And I'm curious, what's the hardest part of the job for you? I think the hardest part of the job, what keeps me up at night is what gets left out of the story. Because only I know everything that's been reported on, every all the data that I have, all the research I've looked at, all of the people I've spoken to, what those people have said to me. And then I have to sit on a computer and decide what makes the most sense put together, what's the most valuable to put into a story. And then that's even before it goes through editing, right? So I have lost sleep just freaking out of like, what if someone misses the point or what if someone feels like they weren't seen or, you know, just being, having to deal with an avalanche of what ifs just because I have a word count or it's not even necessarily a word count, but like sometimes there's just characteristics to a story that aren't, necessary to the theme or the message that you're trying to put together so that's literally the hardest thing and then I would say if I wanted to be funny and I usually do try to be funny is all the PR emails that come through no matter how many email addresses I block or I beg them to take me off their email list I get so many completely irrelevant to my career it's endless and I don't like them. <laughs> okay. I usually ask this at the very end, but I'll ask it here. How do you manage your mental health? So I have a dog. His name is Kenji. It wouldn't be an interview if I didn't bring him up because that little 15 pound dog carries like half of my mental health on his shoulders. I, so that being said, just kind of surrounding myself with love in both giving and taking you know, my dog loves me, but obviously there's like a limit to that expression of affection. So for me, having someone to take care of in that sense makes me feel alive, you know, and just gives me a sense of purpose. And just, it sounds so simple, but I feel like we, as people, we get so caught up in our day-to-day -day that we just forget to go outside and enjoy what's already there for us and not having to chase something like you just go outside and hopefully where, wherever you are, there's like a tree to look at and you can just look up and you can examine each leaf one by one and try to see where the roots below your feet are stretching out into. So just trying to, that sounds very meditative, which is hilarious because I cannot meditate for the life of me. My mind does not shut up, but at least when I'm outside, I, I just try to be present and I do try my best to have hard time boundaries in the sense of 
you know, I'm very protective of my personal time. I used to not be, and I saw a very negative impact of that, like on my life. So weekends, I really try to keep to just, this is me living my life. I try not to think about work or I try not to open my laptop. Really my exception is for my sources because so many of them don't work, you know, eight to fives like I do. So I just make myself available for them. But yeah, I, I mean, to sum it up, I try to touch grass and I try to protect my peace. That's the best I can do for my mental health. And my trying to be funny here, let the dog do the chasing of things. You don't yeah. have to chase, let the dog chase. Have you had any experiences you mentioned very early on about there's always someone who hates a journalist? Have you had any experiences because you're Latina of issues trying to to do your job? I've been lucky that I've never gotten any sort of at least that didn't go over my head from what I know of. I've never been targeted because of my identity or I've never received any kind of what I'm going to nicely say negative feedback because of my identity. I've run into really interesting situations where someone finds out that I am Venezuelan American or you know, that all of my family are immigrants except for myself. And then all of a sudden, that's the only way that they can see me. So that doesn't always have an, a, you know, a negativity to it, but it is very limiting. In high school, I had a video journalism internship with my school district, which sounds really weird, but it existed where I was. And my supervisor knew that I was Latina and granted, I don't look Latina, what someone stereotypically thinks of as Latina and was born and raised in the US. I don't have an accent, but because he knew that I was Venezuelan, whenever I would do on-camera work, he kept telling me to get rid of my accent and I would be so bewildered because I'm like, I am so aware that I don't have an accent. I know what accents sound like around me and one, I love them. And two, they shouldn't be something that you try to chip away at. And three, I just don't have one. And I would get so frustrated and I would just go into the sound booth and cry because I just didn't understand why something was being put on me that I knew wasn't mine. So that's kind of my experiences have been. So again, very fortunate that it's never been anything necessarily hateful, but I have gotten, I've had had to deal with limiting lens so to speak yeah and that you, you say nothing hateful but what you just described though sounds pretty sounds like a tough thing for a lot of people to go through what's the process of writing like for you intense and i try to romanticize it which I do my best writing at night and I tell everyone that because if my editor sees edits or writing in my Google doc at like 2.34 in the morning, he knows not <laughs> to say anything because I just find it a lot more peaceful to do my writing at night. And I say romanticize it because it'll be totally dark in my apartment. I'll have like one light on. I have a candle on. I like to play classical music when I really need to deeply focus. And I just feel like that 
it just feels really spiritual to me. And I can't believe I'm actually saying that out loud because that just sounds ridiculous, but I take the writing very seriously. And so I always say it is intense for me because when I'm in, I'm in, and I I don't want to be pulled away from the computer. And the other part, which I don't know if this is normal for other journalists, because I feel like you don't usually talk about the writing, you talk about the reporting. Um, I write chronologically, despite my best efforts to not do that, because I can't move on if I can't think of a good lead or a nut graph. I will literally spend two hours on the lead. And I'm like, mentally, I'm like, I, I can move on. I can just write the rest of the story and come back. But I, I'm physically incapable of doing that. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. What are the journalism issues that you're most passionate about? Uh, I would say poverty, just because leaving it to poverty has so many pockets within that already, because I feel like all of us can agree that any big social issue you can think of, you know, criminal justice, housing, racial profiling, that's everything I can think of right now. But all of those, essentially, if you're poor, you tend to carry the weight of the world's worst consequences. So for me, I think kind of just starting at that level is my inclination. Housing issues, homelessness issues has become something I'm really passionate about since I've moved to Wichita, especially because I live in an area where there's a lot of those resource centers around me. So I see it every day. It's not something that I can just avoid within my home. And I'm honestly grateful for that because I don't know if I would have had the reality check necessary for me to have the what I think the intimacy necessary to do good reporting about homelessness. And obviously this isn't necessarily a beat, but just trying to do journalism that serves a community like the Latino community, their needs for me is just number one, giving them accurate, trustworthy information, whether that's literal information like news you can use or just information like a feature piece where they can see themselves in. That's what I'm passionate about. How big, how big is the Latino population in Kansas? So much bigger than you would think. I don't know the numbers off of the top of my head because I don't want to make one up and then be wrong and then hate mail from it. (laughs) Um, But I will say that that's something that I've, I will say that I think Kansas has humbled me a lot, which I really appreciate because I was extremely ignorant to Kansas and I don't blame other people for being ignorant just with anything because Kansas has a really massive Latino presence, uh, majority Mexican-American, because this was my fun fact when I moved here that the original boundary of Mexico actually did cut through Southwest Kansas before it was Southwest Kansas. And we had Mexicans working on the railroad system that cuts through Kansas. So I think there's about six counties in the state that are actually majority Latino versus normal white people, which is just so surprising to me. And I wish it wasn't, but you just don't get any other rhetoric about Kansas outside of the state, except for it being like about 
wheat and cows. You know, that's just sure. kind of how it tends to be. Two, uh, two more to close. How do you feel about the opportunities that are available to you and the future of the profession? I think more optimistic than a lot of people, which I think says a lot because I used to work at a Gannett property and I still have hope. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I do have days where I get doom and gloom about journalism, especially when you see layoffs at these really big aspirational companies like BuzzFeed News when they closed down, that shocked me to my core and was very depressing for me. But then I feel like I wake up the next day and I see how much good journalists are doing, specifically local journalists. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's foolish of me, but I just refuse to accept that we're all going to be decimated one by one by like AI or just, you know, big company layoffs. So I don't know. I, I still see a lot of opportunity. And granted, this is coming from a place of privilege where a job was created for me. And I recognize that. And that is not something that happens. But I think that journalism is growing every single day. And I think we're recognizing our mistakes a little bit quicker, not saying that they're immediate. But I do think that as a whole, we do recognize our mistakes a little bit quicker. And I think people do see the value, especially when we're doing the work of reaching out to them and making sure that they feel heard versus us expecting people to just come to us with like the next hot tip or something like that. So I feel good about it. I know that I'm personally growing every single month as a reporter and as a writer. So I can only think that it goes up from here. That's what I choose to believe. That's great. The The podcast is called The Journalism Salute. And just listening to you, I can see you're definitely a, a good person to salute for your good work. And we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Maybe someone we don't know. I have so many. Okay. So for organizations, the 19th, I don't know if you're familiar. Okay, yes. So the no, 19th. go ahead. Speak, speak. You can, I was nodding. We've had multiple guests from there. Go ahead. Stay right okay, okay, okay. and introduce them to, to, to the world for people that wouldn't know. Go ahead. Okay. So the 19th, which is a digital newsroom that they cover gender, politics, and policy. They do amazing work. Mississippi Free Press. I follow their news editor on Twitter, Ashton Pittman. They've just done amazing accountability journalism for a state that I think desperately needs it. The AZ Luminaria, they're a nonprofit newsroom in Arizona that also publishes in English and Spanish. I always shout out the Marshall Project, which writes for, about, and also includes the voices of incarcerated people. And then when it comes to individual journalists, Tiana Woodard, she is a reporter at the Boston Globe who reports on Black communities. I know Report for America placed her there as well. Margot Snipes, who is a health reporter at Capital V News, and Adelise Hernandez, Marisa J. Lang, both of those incredible women, both Latina women. They both work at the Washington Post. Adelise does a lot of border coverage with immigration. And then Marissa, 
usually covers housing and gentrification. And my last shout out has to go to Stephen Walker. He reports at the Sarasota, Sarasota Herald Tribune. He's their education reporter. And he this is that's his first job straight out of college. He started one month after I did. And he's reporting on education in Sarasota County for the state of Florida since May of 2022. So every day, I'm so tempted to buy that man a cup of coffee because I don't think anyone is working as hard as him when it comes to accountability journalism in that county. So I have to give him a shout out too. Yeah, uh, certainly Florida. That's certainly, that's something that we want to uh, get to in our interviews as well. Shoot, Stefania Lugli, lots to talk about with you, certainly. Thank you for joining us. We will be following your work. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.